morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And uh, we have a very special program for you today. I have learned so much about a spirit that uh, I just, I, I took for granted. Uh, it was rum is what we're talking about. And we have a whole program on the subject today, starting with um, the latest definitive reference book on rum called, of course, what else, and a bottle of rum. <laughs> this is Wayne Curtis. Okay, I, I think it was, is it 15 men on a dead man's chest, Wayne? Yeah. And, and then what, what, what's, what's the rest of the poem? Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. And, and, I think that's and, pretty much it. And, and, <laughs> Why is that so and famous? I, I discovered that the, the author is a very famous man. Robert Louis Stevenson. There you go. Louis 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 Stevenson. He's the one that started it all. What, what age were you when you read Treasure Island? I think I was about uh, five. I might have been a little older. I might have been seven or eight when I first came across it. And, 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 for, and that must have made a lasting impression. Because you spent Apparently. you spent the Apparently. rest of, <laughs> you spent the rest of your life in the ill-gotten pursuit of trying to find out more about various kinds of spirits, and today's conversation is about rum. It's true. I, I think it did did have an impact on me, and, whether I wanted it to or not. <laughs> and and the derivation of the name itself is interesting and, and somewhat disputed. Why why don't we begin there? Okay. Uh, Rum, no, there's no definitive uh, etymology to the word rum. There's there's a number of bits of speculation. It's a bit like the word cocktail itself, which no one knows exactly where it came from, although there's some good theories. Uh, but rum was originally called Kill Devil uh, when it was first uh, started cropping up in, in some volume in the West Indies in the early 1600s. Uh, and then somewhere around 1650 or so, it People start referring to it as rum. Uh, the most likely derivation is that it came from the word uh, rumbolion, which just meant uh, tumult or chaos, and you know, something that would result from fighting. And uh, which, would ser- which would certainly happen if people had been drinking the rum you describe. That's why this theory makes sense. If they were drinking this harsh, hot uh, rum filled with probably lots of impurities and cogeners, uh, it would have led to... Uh, uh, lots of fights. And the, the amounts that were consumed in Barbados, which I sort of peg as being the cradle of the com- contemporary commercial rum industry, uh, if people drank as much as uh, was produced there, then there certainly would have been lots of problems and fights and things going on there. And, and the, cons- the consumption numbers you've been, ab- you've been able to come up with based on your research into whatever sources you could find, con- consumption was, was pretty substantial. It was. There was. Uh, I don't recall exactly what it was per person on the island, but there was. It was enough to lay anybody flat on their back. <laughs> uh, and there was probably. And my assumption was a lot of it was exported out, although that probably didn't make it into the records. A lot of that was uh, illegal or informal. Uh, probably a lot of the ships were trading between Barbados and the Northern American colonies, and uh, I imagine a lot of rum traveled north uh, in ships because there wasn't. A whole lot else to go that direction. Uh, most of the stuff is coming from Virginia, Rhode Island, Massachusetts down to Barbados to supply all of the sugar planters down there because 
sugar planters didn't want to waste a single bit of their land to uh, to, to produce anything to feed the slaves, which were required to produce the sugar. Uh, so it was made more sense for them to make sugar and then take their profits and buy everything they needed, whether it was dried cod or dried pork or or fresh produce, whatever that was being shipped down from the north came down. And so the ships came down, but then they had to go back and they had to bring something back. Uh, mostly they couldn't afford the sugar. The sugar was destined for England and the rest of Europe. Uh, so they brought back uh, rum and probably some molasses as well. And, and you're pretty definite that rum was the first of the true spiritus liquors, if you like, the, the concentrated ones, the ones the ones with an elevated alcohol content. For North America, yeah. There there had been there had been a long history of making distilled spirits in Europe. Um, whiskey had been around for years, uh, centuries in Ireland and Scotland and England and gin had been produced in in uh, Holland and elsewhere and there's probably uh, vodka being made from potatoes. Anything Anything that had starch or sugar and could be converted to alcohol inexpensively was converted to alcohol. Uh, that was just the approach, and that started back with uh, in the medieval days in Europe. But it wasn't until uh, the well, actually, Christopher Columbus in 1493 brought sugar over to uh, to the, what would be the modern-day Dominican Republic, and they realized how well it grew there, uh, and it just took off. You know, a couple of centuries later. And, Starting around 1640 in Barbados, and, and, uh, and but, the, but the market to begin with was was the market in the in the uh, northern American colonies, and then then the new nation itself. Yes, yeah, a lot of that rum uh, just made its way north up to the northern colonies. Started making its way over to Europe, but Europe there there was competition. They they already had their gin and brandy and and whiskey there. Uh, where in the North American colonies there was little other to drink other than uh, cider that you could make in your backyard or beer that you could make in your kitchen. Uh, so it was uh, there was a, a ready market for rum in uh, Northern American colonies, and that's so, where it ended up going. So, so bourbon wasn't invented yet? <clears throat> no, depending. Well, you can t- talk to Fred Minnick again. Yeah, we did, we did interview him about bourbon, yeah. There's some there's some discussion. No, but the term bourbon you know, didn't really crop up until much later. But there were people probably making uh, whiskey out of corn and aging in barrels and uh, the liquors that were being made in the colonies, in the, colonies, in the North American colonies. Yeah, I think that's, we, that's sort of where we broke off. Okay. Uh, yeah, for the North American colonies, the uh, if they wanted to have something to drink, they they were not. It was not a prosperous area at the outset, and they had to make what they drank. They couldn't afford to import that much from uh, Europe uh, for the most most of the uh, citizenry. So they would make beer uh, in their kitchen. They could make cider, take some apples and ferment them, um, and then uh, that, that was pretty much what they had. They could make some applejack by distilling the cider. Uh, there probably was some primitive whiskey made from some of the beer, but I imagine most of it went to uh, consumption straight as beer. I mean, people in the early colonies had uh, to get through the winters, and so anything like corn, rye, wheat, barley probably ended up going into breads and, and just being stored as grain for them to cook up, uh, you know, in the, the lean winter months, and it wasn't being used for whiskey. Uh, so when the colonies to the south, uh, uh, the island colonies in the West Indies, 
the ships returned there, they would bring rum, and it was very cheap and accessible. And so that the early days prior to the American Revolution, the northern colonies were really the republic of rum. That's what people drank because it was available and it was cheap, and it got them drunk. Now, <laughs> now you, you chose a very unusual approach to your uh, revised version of the book and a bottle of rum, which, which is to trace the history of ten different, why ten, I'm not sure, ten different uses of the spirit rum in the, in the beverage department, which, which you call cocktails. Although, yep. you know, although the world of cocktails hadn't been invented yet, you, you picked ten landmark manifestations or expressions, if you like, of, of rum and used that as your, as your story. Right. Go, go, go through the, Go through those for our listeners. To, you want to go through all of them? No, do it, you can do it real quick. It's they're pretty familiar. It's uh, started off with uh, Kill Devil. Uh, then we went to Grog, Flip, Medford Rum, Planter's Punch, Demon Rum, which is actually not a cocktail, but more a metaphor, a daiquiri, rum and Coca-Cola, Mai Tai, and the Mojito were yeah. all ten of them. No, I, I ended up going taking that route just because it <clears throat> struck me when I was working on the book that uh, each of the eras, each of these ten eras that I identified, there was sort of a mix of a convergence of political, sociological, cultural, economic, and sometimes technological changes, which uh, sort of led to each of these drinks being, you know, rising to popularity, rising to common consumption at the time. And I wanted to explore each of those in each of the chapters. And it was inter- interesting to me that rum just became the, was sort of the substrate for all of these. Yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really quite amazing. And, and rum was, in the modern era, was really, it, it really changed from, from, if you like, Bacardi to everything else. It did. Well, the pre-Bacardi, it was, uh, I mean, that, that gets into the technological. We didn't get the, the, what's called the coffee still, which is sort of a continuous production still. <clears throat> Until the 1840s, that was invented in Ireland, and then the technology diffused around the globe. But prior to that, everything was made with a pot still, which was done by a batch, and it produced a much heavier, thicker, denser uh, flavor to it. There was a lot more of the impurities that came through, whereas the later coffee still and, and its uh, progenitors or it's ones, the ones that came after it, they were the ones that uh, sort of learned how to strip out a lot of the flavors. So starting in the mid-19th century, a lot of the production uh, became much more refined, uh, and you ended up with much purer, uh, lighter alcoholic beverages. That's really what the, uh, the Bacardi family managed to take, something that had been very uh, dense and funky and made it into something very light and bright and crisp and uh, sort of created those two different styles of, of rum. And today you've got the Puerto Rican style rum, which is, is the Bacardi style, also Cuban, sort of they're, they're related. And then on the other hand, there's the Jamaican style rum, which is still done with, uh, at least partially with pot stills, which capture these really heavy, yeah. uh, rich flavors. That's what I use for my rum cream pie. <laughs> yeah. Now, Barbados Wayne was Pretty, pretty much agreed was sort of where it all started and th- and there is a company that's been operating there since 1703 right Mount Gay 
Mount Gay has got the longest uh, continuous one that I, I've been able to track down. I think there were certainly rum producers prior to 1703. As I write in the book, in the 1640s, people were making it in Barbados, but those sort of came to an end, And whereas uh, Mount Gay has been, at least in 1703, probably earlier, but it's been documented back to 1703 that they've been producing rum. Yeah, well, we're uh, under that label the entire time. We're going to be interviewing them, but um, I had a press release from this company that um, uh, who was it? Just bought, Gallo just bought, and they call it the um, oldest rum in the world. What's it called? It's, uh, I, forget, I forget, man. It's they were, they were kind Dominic. Of, no, they were kind of snooty. They were snooty. press releases make a lot of claims. We, we, are, yeah. we, are, we are enjoying sipping some Mount Gay right now. In fact, we have two different expressions going at the same time. You do. <laughs> I don't it at all. No, no, there is some, some interesting political and social history that, that uh, Wayne per- permeates this book. That, that listeners, if, if you're interested in food and drink, this is, this is a keeper. This is one you should go all the way through because you'll learn all kinds of interesting things, such as, for example, why a rum and coke is called a Cuba Libre. Right. <clears throat> that that dates back to the uh, early days of the, the uh, well, pre, pre-Cuban Revolution. I think a lot of people today think, oh, this must be from Castro and the Revolution. It really dates back to the uh, late 19th century. Uh, what they call the Spanish-American War, right, or something like that? Right, right, Spanish-American War, 1898. Uh, and then it, it uh, sort of became the rum and Coca-Cola during World War II, and I get into that history somewhat about how uh, when the uh, Americans took over so many, uh, created so many naval and air stations on the West Indian Islands, the biggest they did was on Trinidad, and uh, there was a Calypso singer there who had a song, called rum and coca-cola and that was about <laughs> how all the trinidad girls liked all the american men because they uh had money and and uh, were fun to hang out with and they uh, sort of had a song of that and that was picked up by a uso performer named uh, maury amsterdam who happened to be mm-hmm. passing across the island on his way back from europe and uh he heard the song and he sort of took it for his own and uh and uh had it on his show, and that was heard by the Andrews sisters, who uh, who picked it up and uh, made it. it was like the number one song for the decade. Uh, that's my mother's No, it's funny. That Maury Amsterdam was the one who was in the Dick, Dick, the Dick Van Dyke show, right? Right, right. He was one of his colleagues on Dick Van Dyke. Um, so he was he was pretty well known then. Not so well known now. Right. Um, but he's yeah he was he was behind, he ended up getting sued by the Calypso singer and lost and uh, uh, eventually they, they said his work was stolen um, and uh, it's true there's no denying that he took their song but he fixed it up he changed it up a bit a lot of the stuff I think the uh, Americans uh, radio producers didn't want to play songs about how all the American GIs were going down to Trinidad and sleeping with all the lovely Trinidadian girls. Because that would demoralize all the wives and girlfriends left at home, so uh, they changed the lyrics up to make okay. it a little more presentable. There you go. Now, now one, thing, one thing I didn't didn't know, and it doesn't seem entirely fair, is that you say there was sort of like a mini prohibition during the during the Second World War years, because you you could use alcohol to make 
rum, but you could also use it to make, was it aviation fuel or something like that? Yeah, it was used for a bunch of industrial processes, but to make uh, aviation fuel and also some munitions required lots of alcohol in the processes. So all of the domestic uh, producers of spirits were told to cease and desist making uh, spirits and convert to making industrial alcohol for the war effort. So, mm. so suddenly it was hard to to get drinks. It was hard to get American whiskey, except for, you know, there was, you know, two, three-year supply in barrels that they could tap and sell. Uh, it was hard to get scotch because all of the boats that were coming across right. the North Atlantic were being targeted by the Germans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all the, that was one, one of the, you know, I talk about sort of several mini golden ages of rum, and uh, one of them was definitely during World War II when all the rum distilleries in the Caribbean fired back up again to meet American demand for spirits when all the others came up short. So that that took off. <laughs> and, and then you've got the latest generation, if you like, or the close to the latest generation, with with the uh, um, the, the Mai Tai and the Mojito. Oh, yeah. Right. Representing, I guess, today, today's drinking drink the glass. Right. Well, the Mojito definitely for today, although that, that seems to have tapered off somewhat since the first edition of the book came out, uh, what, 12 years ago. Uh, the Mai Tai definitely was representative of the uh, 1950s and 60s when that was uh, in its glory day. It dates back even earlier uh, into the 1940s from Oakland at Trader Vic's. But it's, uh, it's I mean, the tiki it's craze was... My friend Jeff Barry, who writes about tiki drinks extensively, calls it the longest drink fad ever. I mean, oh, it it's coming 1934. back. Yeah, I see it coming back. 1934, really, yeah, it never really went away, and now it's back stronger than ever. There's I mean, more tiki bars opening up I'm, every... Uh, I remember uh, Trader Vic's brought it back in the 60s, was it? Yep. And now started we have, by Don the Beachcomber, and no, I actually started yeah. by Trader Vic in the 1940s. T- the Tiki trend started in 1934 by Don the Beachcomber, and then Trader Vic sort of rode his coattails, and then in the 1940s he sort of emerged as the more sophisticated of the two and, and uh, popularized the Mai Tai. And then that uh, it stumbled along, and then there was another boom in the mid-1950s. Uh, this was sort of a Polynesian craze. There was the... It was Elvis Presley's Blue Hawaii came out, South Seas, the Broadway oh, right. musical was out, uh, and everybody was fascinated by the South Pacific again, so the tiki bars went through a second phase of growth in the mid-50s until the 1970s, and then they sort of faded and became a little bit sad. There's only only a handful that have remained from then, including the Maikai down in Fort Lauderdale, which is sort of the they're opening. We, we have a very popular tiki bar here. I mean, it's just opened three years ago. What, I, I was there, I think, just after it opened. What's that one called again? I forgot. <laughs> I went on frequent it. She was there too frequently. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, there's, something, yeah. there's, there's something else that's going on with rum, and it's been, go, it's been going on certainly since you wrote your first book and whether whether you're seeing maybe a, a third book here and that's the amount of rum that's being made by artisans artisan oh, yeah. distillers throughout the United States for example there's a there's a a whiskey producer here called Wiggle Whiskey but they also make a rum and and we're now tasting a really interesting rum from the nation's capital which should, yeah, yeah. Should, needs to be more widely distributed District on Capitol Hill. <laughs> District distilling. Yeah, yeah, it needs to be more widely distributed. Yes. 
Uh, I think uh, when my calculation when I did the revisions on the book was that um, there were two people making craft rums in the United States. When I did the first edition 12 years ago, and when I revised it, I counted uh, 217, oh, so wow. I'm sure that's, that number's low. There's wow. probably another 100 on top of that that I wasn't able to, to, to get uh, a, a grip on. But, yeah, no, I, I think uh, Meredith at, at Wiggle does great stuff. I uh, you know Meredith. My, she's good, yeah. Yep, she's wonderful. And um, some of my favorite uh, rum is actually made in Massachusetts now by Privateer uh-huh. uh, Rum. There's also some rums out of Georgia, Richland rum, a couple in Louisiana that are using all the abundant sugar cane to make fresh sort of Martinique-style rum. And what what gives me the feeling that Wayne could have gone on forever? I know he's so much fun. He was so, <laughs> he's so much fun and so very knowledgeable. So I think we're off to a great start with the rum program, uh, but we're we're going to get into tasting some of the real stuff right after the break. So don't go away because we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Um, I don't think that I really thought seriously about rum I guess I thought of it as what Aunt Dorothy drank with Coca-Cola or what I used in my... Rum dark, cream pie. Yeah, yeah, my rum cream pie. But um, there's so many nuances to it, and, and I really got to like it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe too much. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Well, next up we have... Um, he, he's kind of special. Here's Matt Strickland from District Distilling Companies. Buzzard Point Barrel Aged Rum. And of course, from the title, District Distilling, you're going to catch a clue as to where it's made. And, and about, about one of the few good things coming out of there just right now. now yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> but, uh, Mr. Strickland, we sure appreciate your being part of the program. So here's our first rum for you to enjoy. Thinking about us enjoying it. Matt Strickland, welcome to On The Menu Radio. Uh, we're talking to you in the nation's capital, but we won't hold that against you. <laughs> or, or, maybe, or, maybe, or maybe we will. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess it kind of depends, right? Uh, one, uh, one, of the, one, of was, one thing is clear. What, what you're doing is the Lord's work, and you need to do a lot more of it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you sit on. I think uh, I think everybody could probably use a use a drink right now. You know, this is specifically called District Distilling. That's the company, uh, and it's a Buzzard Point barrel aged rum. And what caught my attention is that it took a silver medal in this big competition in San Francisco, right? Correct. Yes. Um, That's pretty good, isn't the, it? Uh, yeah. No, we were really proud of it. That was the um, that was the first time we'd ever entered that into competition. Actually, we entered it before I even released it onto the market. So I was I was really pleased with that. We should mention that you are the master distiller of this yeah. company. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't use that term. But <laughs> yeah, that's. Well, that's, that's what they call me. Uh, 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 <laughs> let's make something else clear as well, because 
Posen's point isn't, isn't just a distillery, it's also a restaurant and bar as well in, in the nation's yeah. capital on, on what you call the U Street Corridor. We lived in D.C. I don't remember there was a U Street Corridor then. No, and it was Northwest. We lived in uh, on U, wasn't it? U Street in, the, in um, Georgetown? 20, 27, 23, whatever the hell it was. 37th okay. place, Northwest. 37th place. Or 36th place, Northwest. I can't yeah, we're, we're still, we're still technically in the Northwest. We're just sort of, we're just sort of getting more centralized closer to downtown. And, uh, yeah, no, District Distilling Company, we have, um, we have a restaurant and bar. Uh, our restaurant is technically being renovated right now, so we, I guess we don't technically have a restaurant, but, uh-huh. um, at least for a few more weeks, but, uh, yeah, we, we actually have a, we have a bar upstairs from the distillery and we have a, uh, a tasting room bar downstairs and, uh, you know, live jazz music every night. And really? The whole thing. So, boy, I yeah, never, yeah. not in our neighborhood, boy, we never had any of that. Well, um, no, what, well, what's no, Buzzard Point? Second, yeah, let's, let's, let's have you tell us and our listeners why Buzzard's Point, why you think it's special. There are some, there are some things you do that every rum distiller does not do. Yeah, uh, no, that's, 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 that's probably true. I don't, I don't know if I'm, uh, if I, if I'm so clever that I've, I've done things that nobody else does. But, just diff- um, just different, that's all. Yeah, yeah, no, we, I, I try to be. So, um, the, uh, the buzzer point rum is actually, yeah, it's kind of interesting because it's, I wanted it to be more of, uh, what I kind of deemed sort of a colonial style rum. Uh, being that we we're in the nation's capital, there's actually this really long history of rum production along the Atlantic seaboard, uh, all the way up into New England, especially. Uh, rum was arguably, the, you know, the country's first real native spirit, long before whiskey got a foothold. And uh, I wanted to kind of get back to this idea of rum being sort of an American spirit. And when people think of rum and they go to the liquor store or they go to a bar, a lot of times, just the word rum sort of conjures, uh, you know, the tropics and tiki, uh, tiki you know, bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I actually love tiki cocktails, but I wanted a rum that I felt uh, was a little bit more at home in uh, in DC, and we created a rum that arguably is the first rum distilled in DC in over 200 years. Um, there is some evidence, actually, that, that uh, the last real rum distiller uh, was uh, in this region was was George Washington. Oh yeah, um, he did this. Yeah, yeah, he had he had a distillery. He had a distillery that he made a lot of rum no, whiskey at, yeah. and yeah, I have a I, I'm I'm friends with the uh, the guy that heads up the Mount Vernon distillery and. Uh, he was telling me not too long ago that they have just recently uncovered evidence, uh, old receipts from George Washington oh, yeah. that uh, listed molasses as an ingredient. Um, and so it looks like he was actually making rum at least uh, at least once or twice. So yeah, well, um, you, you don't think, use molasses in yours. You use something. No, no, we don't. It. And so yeah, to kind of answer your question, that's one of the things that makes us a little different is the sugar that we use. And it can be called rum as long as what you're using comes from sugarcane in some form or fashion. Uh, so what we use is we use a sugar called panela. Uh, sometimes you'll hear the name rapadura. 
but panela is the, the common name. And you can, it's a specialty brown sugar that you can find in a lot of upscale markets, you know, uh, Whole Foods and things like that. But uh, what it is is essentially it's in the brown sugar family. And unlike most brown sugar where it's crystallized white sugar that has had molasses sprayed back onto it to give it color and flavor and aroma, panela is crystallized white sugar that has been heated up and caramelized a little bit. And so the flavors are actually more of a um, roasted marshmallow, uh, very grassy. You get um, some of the fruit character. It's And the texture of the of the sugar itself is very creamy. Uh, if you've ever had jaggery, like Indian jaggery, like palm sugar, uh, it's actually very similar to that. Oh, yes. Well, now okay. you, do, you do something else as well that's interesting. Uh, you, you, yeah, you, so you, one of the... You, you, one of, you, hold on a minute. You use yeasts, which are yes. ordinarily used in making scotch. Right. Or, or so, whiskey uh, one of the things that I thought would be really interesting to do, and I started to kind of think about the the types of yeast that would have been available to distillers on uh, on the East Coast uh, during the colonial period. And a lot of the distillers that were coming to the United States uh, were the Ulstermen. These were the uh, some of the... Um, People that were fleeing Scotland, um, they were old moonshiners in Scotland. Oh, interesting. They, they, yeah, so uh, a lot of our distilling heritage actually does come from from Scotland. And I started thinking, I said, well, you know, if I were if I were going to distill something, if I was going to ferment something in the in in that time period, I would probably use yeast that I had available to me. And it occurred to me that not every distiller back then would have had access to this, but some of those distillers may have brought along, um, whether knowingly or not, they might have brought along some of their native uh, whiskey yeast. And so I thought, well, it might be fun. So, to, yeah. There's a there's a very famous uh, Scotch whiskey yeast that's in, that's in use in, in probably the bulk of the Scotch industry. And I, I knew how to get a hold of it, and so I, I said, well, you know, I think it might be interesting to do a rum with that. Uh, it has a really nice ester development, uh, it ferments really well, and so that's what we use for our rum. And and you age in in American whiskey casks. Right, right. So we do a couple of uh, blended bourbons, and uh, so we when I decant those whiskeys, um, and I get them ready for blending, I don't really want to just get rid of the barrels. They're not trash. I can I can still use them. So. I uh, I take those barrels and I I'll throw things like gin or well in this case rum into them, um, and our rum was aged for close to two years, about twenty months, uh, before we put it on the market. And I didn't release all of it. I actually have sort of a, a few casks reserved for a much older release that'll come out um, far away from now. But you're going to be you're going to be patient, right? You got to be patient. Well, we, we we know you have small children, so you better save some of it for them, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I got I got two little girls, and uh, yeah, they're they're quite a ways off from drinking. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> they're quite a ways off from drinking anything. Now, you haven't explained the name Buzzard Point. Yeah, we get that a lot, and uh, the owner wanted to call it Buzzard Point. Uh, it is. Buzzard Point is actually an area in D.C. It's in southeast D.C., and it's actually where the Anacostia and Potomac Rivers meet. Okay. And um, 
and it's actually right now, it used to be not, not such a wonderful part of town. It's actually growing and, and uh, gentrifying quite a bit. There's a lot of, um, lot of build up around that area right now. It's kind of, kind of an exciting place. Um, but yeah, that's that's where the name Buzzard Point comes Is from. Is that kind of down, down near the Navy Yard? Yeah, yeah, not exactly where the Navy Yard is, but very close. Yeah. Okay, got it, got it. So, so it's not so it's not where the distillery is actually located. No, no, but we're we're ten minutes away from it. So there you go. Now you just hinted that you make bourbon as well, but since since our conversation today and and the program that you're a part of today. Uh, he's, he's all about rum. So is there anything else you'd like to add about Buzzard's Point rum uh, that people should know? Hello? There we are. There yeah. we are. I lost you for a second. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, what, what, what were you asking me? So is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about Buzzard Point rum? So uh, we have an aged version. We also have an unaged version uh, that uh, I don't, you know, it's, We've talked about not because unaged rum is sort of a it's sort of a weird proposition for people. A lot of people don't care about it unless it says Bacardi on the label, and I I think that's kind of a shame because it's unaged rum is actually a really uh, it can be a really beautiful spirit, and you can oh, do I a lot of really great. interesting things with it. I mean, it's yeah, that's like I mean, I, I really uh, love single malt scotches, um, and, mm-hmm. and, and but I like this is great for sipping. It's nothing like. The rums that, like, my one aunt used to have some kind of rum that certainly she drank with Coke. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. yeah. And, and I always tell people that, that you know, we try, to, we try to balance the line with spirits here because we have a cocktail bar. Um, we want people to come in and try the spirits on their own, but we also try to dance that really delicate line, and it's a very hard thing to do as a producer, but to make spirits that go equally well with cocktails as they are to drink by themselves. Yeah, now if you're um, in one of these, use, if you're in one of these competitions, did they judge you against uh, Scotch makers or? or they'll you, judge you against other other rum producers. Yeah, for sure. Um, they they'll they'll have different categories, and every competition is set up a little bit differently. Uh, I I judge for the American Craft Spirits Association. And I know their competition is very different than uh, the San Francisco competition, which is very different than the New York International and I so see. on. Uh, but generally, they try to keep rums compared to other rums. Uh, and there will be subcategories in there, so you're not likely to see uh, our aged rum competing against, uh, you know, uh, Bacardi White or something like that. It's, right. it's not something you'd see. Well, I'm sipping it slowly. I'm yeah, I mean, this is the first sipping. taste I got it's of it. Make, <laughs> it's, it's, it's making making me. Sound, I liked it. Yeah, it's a it's a little bit like an Aretha Franklin song. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Bless her soul. Yes, bless her soul. Sipping sipping her softly, right? <laughs> yeah, that wasn't exactly what it, what it was, but we'll we'll change the words just for not, today. Yeah, not quite, but that's that's totally fine. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure you, you'll rejoin us several years from now with more about the story of Buzzard Point and all the other exciting things you're doing. So thank you so much. Oh, I'd be me. happy to do it. Well, thanks, Matt Strickland. Again, uh, we're talking about District Distilling Company, which is uh, uh, it's, it's bigger than this subject, actually. But they also produce 
an award-winning buzzard point barrel-aged rum, and uh, that's what we're talking about. And good talking to you, Matt. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Okay, back to back to tasting and trying rum, and uh, two special places to conclude our program today. First of all, Don Q, and Don Q represented by Robert Serralis. Robert Serralis. Okay. To say this guy is busy doesn't even begin to describe it. I started negotiating a schedule for, for interview in February and finally got a hold of him last month. But what, but what particularly drew our attention to, to Don Q, and not least, I guess, because of the fact that he comes from Puerto Rico, which is a hotbed of rum production from, from way back when. But one of the things that they're doing at Don Q is that, is they're experimenting with aging the rum, first of all, aging it more than typically, and then aging it in different kind of exotic wood barrels to give different flavor combinations. So, he, he's an interesting guy to listen to. And then to close out the program, a, a young lady talking about rum, Kayla Mata, who's the brand ambassador for Mount Gay Rum. And Mount Gay Rum claims, when, with some historical support, I believe, that the island of Barbados, where they're lo- located and have been located since the 1700s, uh, is where rum making really began. So that will be closing out the program with Mount Gay Rum. So first up, Don Q, and then... Mount Gay. It's it's really funny. As as an Englishman, I, I can start out thinking about rum in a different way than most people because it it is the single reason why the British Navy ruled the world. <laughs> and, but, but, but You're I, absolutely right. Is that, are you recording but, this? But I, yeah, but I did. I did hear recently that in fact they cancelled the daily tot of rum that was given to every sailor in the Royal Navy. Now I'm not sure that's that true, is. and and if it is true, then, then I'm, I'm worried for your business, young man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did hear the same rumors. So if it's true, yeah, well, I, I, I worry about the. Uh, the future of the Royal Navy, more than that, actually. Yeah, there you go. So, so anyway, <laughs> on on the menu is talking to Roberto Serralis, who is. Are you today in Puerto Rico, Roberto? Believe it or not, I'm actually in a different area of the of the country. I'm in. Uh, I am Massachusetts. I, I was. Uh, I'm in Cape Cod. Uh, just oh, outside, nice. Uh, visiting. My go. family's from. Uh, my family's wife is uh, from New England, and uh, we we try to spend some a little bit of time every summer, like. Every good New England family in uh, in Cape Cod. So, um, okay, great. But, but so I just happened to start my week vacation here. But, but but your traditional home, where you were born, the business that you run, all all of that is in Puerto Rico. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm a six uh, six generation rum maker. Uh, my family's been in Puerto Rico making rum for over 150 years. 153, to be precise. Now, t- tell t- 
Tell us a little bit about rum as an enthusiast. You're an enthusiast about rum. Of that, there's no doubt. So as a rum enthusiast, tell us about rum. Sure. I think, you know, rum is, uh, as I was saying earlier, I think rum is probably, you know, one of those spirits categories that gets the least amount of respect. Um, And that is, uh, you know, for many, many reasons. Uh, And not like the same place everywhere. I mean, in the United States particularly, it's been dominated by some, very specific uh, brands, and, and so the, the associations with rum have been kind of a little bit about, you know, partying, or partying at the beach, or partying with pirates, or, or, or all of the above. Or those and, little and, umbrella yeah. things in drinks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is all fine and dandy, you know, vacationing in the Caribbean, and a little uh, cocktail with an umbrella on it, but, but the reality of the case is that, you know, when you look at rum, and, and it, it is one of the, I would say, is one of the most sort of uh, noble of spirits in the sense that, you know, if you, if it's properly distilled and, uh, and, and then aged properly and, and, and blended or not, uh, it is just, it's such a nice, soft, uh, versatile spirit. It's one that can actually be drunk uh, on the rocks if it's, if it's nice enough or, or actually it's great in cocktails. You know, it's a, it's a really, you know, versatile, uh, spirit in that regard. So it does definitely gets a lot of, um, you know, gets a lot of attention for consumers for that reason, you know, for the fact that it's very versatile. But also, um, now I think we're, we're seeing there's a renaissance of people kind of looking at rum more away from, from the sort of party aspect and more of the, God, this is a really fine spirit. I mean, and we do all the same things that a fine scotch does in terms of elaboration. Um, I mean, I love fine scotches. I don't want to offend anybody. But, uh, you know, we, we, we're very careful how we do these, our fermentations. We distill multiple columns. Uh, we, we blend before we age. And then we go ahead and age for many years. Um, you know, at, at aging losses in Puerto Rico, just to give you a sense, uh, and here I'm getting a little more technical, our aging losses are on the average of 8 to 10% the first year. In other words, I put 50 gallons of rum in a barrel, and after one year you might end up only with 45. So this... You know, whereas in Scotland, you know, you, you get 1% to 2%. Now the, so, so the angel's share is really big, huh? Huge, yeah. And I think that, that, is a, that is a fact that, you know, most consumers don't think about because most consumers will look at a bottle and they look at a number and it's a 12 or it's even a 20-year-old or something. And then normally that number, the higher it is, the, the, the higher the quality. The thing is that not everything ages at the same rate in different parts of the world. Puerto Rico, where it's dry where we are particularly, and, and hot, you know, the aging losses, as I said, are really high. So this is accelerated aging uh, that goes on inside those barrels. Those wood yeah. fibers are opened yeah, well, up completely the whole year round. And, and, and that just gives us more character at a shorter amount of time. Well, the hook that we... Hold on, hold on a minute. Robota, are you outside in the wind or something like that? I'm, I'm, getting, a lot, yeah. a lot, I'm getting a lot of feedback. Let me, let me see if I can go back in to a better place. Let's see. I think this will be better. Let's try this now. Uh, much better. Now, now the way we got hooked in, uh, up with you we're, here we're is, is that um, a press release announcing that you released a double-aged vermouth cask finish. Yeah. Rum. Yeah. And let's, let's do a couple of things, couple of additional okay. things before, before, before we get to that, before we get to that. Because I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna perhaps surprise you, uh, Roberto, by saying I, I have a feeling that some, somewhere along the way, about 20 years ago, rum lost its way. Uh, 
and, and became a product called Bacardi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which, which, which those of us who have a respect for spirits think is a work of the devil. Well, you said that, Nami. Yeah. Well, no, but you're, you're, allowed, you're allowed to respond. But, but I think that, that, that did happen, and this particular brand, with, with the power of the advertising machine that the United States is, Mm-hmm. Took took over the took over the market, and uh, and as as a result, the 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 true rum aficionado d- didn't have an aficionado, <laughs> b- 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 because what you had was this bland, for many people's taste, overly sweet, totally mm-hmm. neutral in color, and mm-hmm. and advertising behind it. Su- suggesting that if you weren't drinking Bacardi, then you couldn't possibly be having a good time. Yeah, I think you pretty much got it. <laughs> Is that what Aunt Dorothy used to drink with no, Coke? She used to, she used to drink Ron Rico. Ron Rico. She, 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 used to right. drink, she used to drink the Super Duper 155 proof Ron Rico. <laughs> in, wow. In, in, in a cocktail. This is my aunt. In a, in, in a cocktail called a... Called a uh, Cuba Libre. We can't have that. Obviously, the, the, the rum business has been well taken care of, but, but I'm, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I, I'm guessing uh, that with Bacardi as a competitor, that t- times occasionally could be kind of tough. Yes, yes, it is. And I think your assessment is, 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 is spot on in the sense of you know, here's here's one, and, and this 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 statistic actually will 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 uh, will attest to your point. If you look today, market share of the rum category, there are three brands have sixty percent market share in the United States, which is a twenty five million case market. So when you think of that concentration of power in three brands, like for example, if you go to the vodka category and you look for what's sixty percent market share re- reflect number of brands, you get probably about, you know, 50 to 100 brands, you know, just to get to that number. So, you don't, in rum, it's three. And it's basically, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Bacardi. Uh, and what the, what are they talking about? They're talking basically about partying, you know, and, and having fun and partying. Um, then you have Captain Morgan. They're talking about partying with pirates. And then uh, you have Malibu, which is partying at the beach. So, all these three massive brands have been extremely successful. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they've been They've commercialized these brands tremendously. But the message, I think, that, that they've been pushing for the last 20 years has been one not about, you know, craftsmanship and quality and aging and all these wonderful characteristics about rum. They've just been pushing this other sort of um, conversation that I think is not doing great. It doesn't help, hasn't helped the category. But I think today what we're seeing is, again, in the, in the coattails of kind of this new interest in, in, in American whiskeys and, and scotch, etc., you start seeing people looking at rums like, hey, you know, the fine rums that we make, traditional rums that we make, you know, are made every way, the same way in quality as as those fine uh, whiskeys. And, and now we can become part of that conversation. And I think that, that's exactly true. I mean, that you can, you know, there's a problem when, when, when the category leaders aren't leading the category in the way that you want to lead because the way you want a leader in the category to perform is to, to continue to up pricing, to continue to up the image and, and and all those cues that consumers will see in a category. So basically what we're seeing in the category is a revolution of these smaller players saying, you know what, we're not going to follow that 
conversation. Uh, that that uh, that conversation. So we're going to do this thing differently. We're going to talk specifically about what we do that is great. How we make our rums in a you know an old traditional way. We don't. I don't. We don't add sugar to our rums. We we age everything that we do. You know, and that's the way my great grandfather started making rum, and that's the way we continue to make rum. So. And I think there's a beauty to it because you, you find the, that quality essence in our rums that, um, that's been lost a little bit in the category. Now, now we're talking I, specifically about Dawn Q, which is your flagship. Well, hold on a second. Before, before, we, before, Correct. We, before, we, before we get there, Roberto mentioned one thing that I don't want to let go by because you, you said you, you blend before you distill. Yeah, yeah. No, after we distill, after we, uh, before we age, sorry. Before, before you age, okay. Now, is, is that and after we age. And, that, and that's something that the bourbon people do and the Scotch people do, but the people who make vodka and uh, main market rum don't do that. Correct, correct. I mean, and, and just to, to give you a really, you know, in, in one minute, like the really quickly, the way we do it, you know, most of the rum we, we produce is a five-column distilled rum. You know, Puerto Rican-style rums tend to be, you know, multiple-column distillation rums. So we produce a rum that we call a, a, a light rum because it's got it's light, in con, uh, light in congeners. And that is, you know, uh, the majority of what we make is a five-column rum, and we age it by itself. However, we'll also make a single-column rum from an old copper column that we bought actually from Bendham, Kentucky, you know, whiskey uh, from our original distillery, it's 1934 copper column we still use. And that one we distill, you know, single-column distillation. comes out about 150 proof, and we age that by itself. We call that our heavy rum. And then what we'll do is actually we'll blend our heavy rum with our light rum, straight, straight out of the stills, into different proportions. And we make certain varieties of medium rums. And then we age those medium rums by themselves, right? So then let's just say we start with, you know, three medium rums, a heavy rum, and a light rum. So we age them for X number of years, and they develop differently in the barrels. When we go to do a blend, like our Gran Añejo, for example, which is our top-of-the-line, you know, 9- to 12-year-old uh, rums blend, We'll blend about eight different types of rums, some, some heavy rums, certain ages, some medium rums, some light rums. And what that does, it's each of these rums is like, you know, like when you're making a, a blend, the way we, we look at it, it's like we're making a painting. It's like, and you're using these, you know, these light, light rums that are aged, and the medium rums and the, and the heavy rums as different colors or tints that you're putting in your painting. And that's kind of how we approach making these fine blends is, again, we blend the different rums that come out of the still to make different colors, and then at the end we blend all the colors together to make these beautiful sort of uh, expressions. Well, then, then you got a new idea. I, I don't yeah. know. I don't. I don't know how revolutionary your idea is, but w- one thing that we have noticed over the years, and listeners, you you will have noticed too, is that your your traditional single malt Scotch producers started to venture out into something other than. Bourbon, use bourbon barrels, and to a variety yep. of others like portwood and sherry and a variety of other things. How, yeah. how did you get the idea of doing something similar to that with rum? I mean, were, were, had people been doing it before, or was it truly a unique step? No. Yep. So bear with me. Wait, wait. Well, now it started again. I think I'm going to I'm going to save what I'm going to do what I suggested. So I'll be back with you in about a minute or so. Sure, no problem. I'll just wait right here. Is it nice on Cape Cod right now? 
Yeah, it's very nice, actually. It's uh, you know, it's a beautiful day. Um, I'd say it's uh, mid seventies. Slightly overcast. It was clear this morning. It was slightly overcast. But it's, you know, light breeze and the waters are calm. There's a lot of um, wildlife, and I'm looking over the ocean right now. It's uh, I can see Nantucket off in the distance. It's important. Okay, you're live. Okay. Go ahead. So. In, in the context of, you know, where rum is in terms of the barrels that are used and so on, one of the rums that we do use is a Solera aged rum. And we've been doing this Solera, you know, we put our Solera together about 50 years ago. And as you know, these how Soleras work, it's always like a blend of, of things. You never empty the barrels, you keep refilling them. Uh-huh. And those we use sherry casks. So that's the first, you know, so in a sense, but we've always used American white oak barrels. The funny thing about yeah. the barrels we've used, we've been very picky about barrels and this is a traditional thing we don't like fresh freshly dumped ex-bourbon barrels i think we we find that for puerto rican style rums which are very again, light rums multiple times distilled you know not a lot of congeners that heavy charring that's still present after six years and used it for bourbon overwhelms um my my spirit a bit mm-hmm. so we try to use barrels we, we actually seek out barrels that are kind of like light whiskey, twice used light whiskey barrels. The barrels have been used for whiskey first, and then, so they've been used for bourbon, then American or Canadian whiskey, and then we use them. So okay, by then, good. they've all, you know, gotten less overwhelming, the char, just enough char to you to, to provide the, 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 the cues we want, but not uh, not overwhelming. So getting back to this, um, to this project, you know, I, as you said, there certainly has been a great tradition in in you know, recent tradition in, in fine scotch to start using other barrels to do some aging and, or finishing or, or, or secondary aging and so on. And, you know, so, you know, we, you know, we didn't make anything up. I think the idea for us came to, again, it's following this, this, it's, you know, I really truly believe that categories, if the leader's not going to lead, then the other players have to kind of pick up the slack, so to speak. And so, you know, if if whiskeys are doing the beautiful thing with, with the category, and American whiskeys, too, and bourbon and so on, are doing great things, um, we got to start using the same language. You know, if we want to be considered in that sort of pantheon of great spirits, uh, we got to sort of, you know, one of the things that you do something absolutely unique, or you just, you know, do something that the other folks are doing, so then they start realizing, wow, a rum can do the... the the great things that 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 a uh, whiskey operates different notes and it gives you a, a different perspective. So, where, where we just went slightly different was using um, these vermouth casks. Um, you know, vermouth is not something that's normally like you, you think of as uh, some uh, spirits that have been heavily aged or anything. But uh, I met Giancarlo Mancino at a festival in, in Europe at a rum festival uh, through some friends, and you know we struck a conversation. He's a, he's making this really nice vermouth in, in Italy, uh, which is aging for a year in these Italian white oak barrels, and uh, there's beautiful 600 liter large barrels. Uh, and he's like, "Hey, Roberto, you know I'm going to be done with these three barrels, and you have any interest in these?" I was like, "Wow, vermouth, hmm, interesting." We've been uh, we've been doing a lot of uh, you know uh, in terms of cocktails you know so a Manhattan with a fine aged rum is like a twist on a on a classic whiskey cocktail but you do it with a rum and people are like do a double taste wait a minute this is not quite whiskey but it tastes really good what is yeah. it so we've been doing that and then the, the, so it, it became a natural like hey you know 
sure, I'll take them. Let me play around with these barrels. And, and for me, it really, re, you know, what I'm realizing is that, you know, um, part of, part of, you know, the, the beauty that, that, that our category has, again, it's a very versatile, uh, spirit. So it, it, I, I'm thinking up on ourselves to, to really try to stretch the category a little bit and start using a lot of different woods. Um, to really provide new consumers with new expressions and new things that they don't, they haven't seen. As you say, most rum consumers have tried that white spirit and with Coke or with whatever, yeah. and that's what they think rum is. And, yeah. and really what we're trying to do is really stretch their minds to think about rum in so many new ways. So the first expression is this one is, um, and again, so it's a double edged, but it really, you know, to be perfectly clear and we say it in the label it's it's a finish it's a cask finish so we it's a five to eight year old blend of rums that are both light rums as i told you there's some medium rums in there and there's some heavy rums all blended together we picked a really nice blend and we went ahead and then put it you know rested it really we finished it for four to six weeks in these beautiful uh vermouth casks and, and, and these, are, and these are just, these are sweet vermouth these, yes. these are these are italian yep. these are italian sweet vermouth Correct. Got it. Correct. Uh, and uh, and what just, came out just, was just this just you know, happens beautiful... To be, just happens to be a key ingredient in a Manhattan, right? Exactly. So then the whole notion was like, wow, when, when, you, when you get it out of the bottle and, and, you, and you nose it at first, you're like, wow, this is, it's got a very dry nose, um, you know, and it's dry because, you know, but you get some of those herbaceous notes, you get some of those beautiful sort of elements that you'd find in a, in a vermouth, but it's still, we wanted it to be rum, you know, and be very rummy, but make sure that it just, just hints, just elements of hints that just, you know, just to please the palate of, of a consumer that's looking for something completely, you know, different and unusual. So that was the project. Uh, we were really happy how it turned out. Um, and we have, you know, since then, that was the first one because uh, we did, but we started, we had a whole series of, I basically started buying a bunch of different barrels because we had so much fun with this project. So we will be coming out um, very recently, um, soon with a uh, sherry casks mm-hmm. uh, finish, and that's a uh, five to eight year old blend, exact same blend that we did on the vermouth, except that we finished it for an entire year in uh, Oloroso sherry. Uh, oh, wow. That's coming out uh, shortly, and that one is absolutely beautiful. Uh, we did uh, the same thing. We have uh, the next one will come after that will be a cognac. Oh, wow. finish, um, also for a year. Uh, you know, you're, you're very you're, uh, serious about this, and I, I'm going to interject something. Is You're not just sure. talking off the top of your head. Um, you, you have a Ph.D. in environmental sciences from the University of Oregon, and you have a, <laughs> an armload of, of uh, awards <laughs> from all kinds of yeah. organizations. Uh, I mean, you're really an expert in this. You're a master rum distiller, honored as such. Um, you have a whole other program that I want to make sure we get to talk to you about is your environmentalism. Sure, sure. We can talk about all those things. I mean, I'm, you know, it's a, I am, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, I just, uh, we try to make good rum, you know, and now uh, I, uh, I'm pretty humble about all that stuff. Yeah. You know, in reality, the story about my Ph.D. was, you know, nobody in their right mind goes to do a Ph.D. unless they want to be a, a university professor. Um, and right. that was my original plan was I just wanted to teach. <laughs> uh, and uh, But then, you know, uh, the family uh, came calling uh, and uh, the family business. Uh, we had needed some work with some environmental issues of the facility. It's like, 
well, you got a PhD in this stuff. You want to come help out? I was like, well, I hadn't thought about that. I don't have a job. I just finished uh, my, my, I was writing my, my dissertation. And, um, lo and behold, that's how I went, uh, started making that, um, started working. My first job was working on, on the back end on all the, the, the wastewater that comes out of the distillery. So we designed this wastewater to energy project. Uh, it took us five years to design and, and implement and it's been running pretty well. You know, it's, uh, but the idea is to treat our, our, our wastewater, um, which basically is a lot of organic content, to kind of clean it a little bit, make it irrigation-grade water, and then extract some biogas in that process that you can use it to fire your boilers and save some energy that way. So kind of close the loops in terms of turning a waste into some things of use is the, the overall sort of paradigm that we're going after. I mean, it's, it's a model, and, you know, we, we started to, to do these things. It's, it's, but it's, this is a lifelong project because... To me, uh, you know, environmental responsibility, in particular, this concept of sustainability is a, is not a is not a destination. It's a it's a it's a process. It's a it's a commitment too. So we are just sort of trying. You know, every day we're just trying new things, new projects to see how we can actually get a little better uh, in terms of again reusing waste streams and turning into something of use. Because really, when you think about rum. Way, the reason rum is and reason our distillery is where it is is because it's right next to our old sugar mill. We were in sugar first. Uh-huh. And molasses is nothing other than the waste product of sugar making. So the very DNA of rum is from this notion of reusing a waste stream from the sugar industry and turning some value add. Um, that's how I see it. And uh, so it's, you know, it's following that sort of same DNA, that same sort of thought process that I believe there's a huge amount of opportunity, and if industry is going to be part of solution for sort of you know global sustainability of some sort, you know, industry is a huge yeah, I mean, component of it. You're you know, not just figure it out, you you're know? not just fiddling around. I mean, you're changing the course of, of that huge industry, rum industry, is what you're doing. Yeah, no, we're, we're, no, we're really. I mean, I, I, you know, we're just trying little projects. You know, I'm, again, I'm, I'm not uh, proposing. I'm doing anything other than that. Uh, just try, you know, just try, just try to get better every day. Um, but, uh, but yes, I, I, you know, I do believe that we we have a responsibility and, and and we have the know-how. I mean, we don't have to reinvent too many things. We just got to put things together, get a little creative, and uh, and 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 just you know put our our real you know mind and, and commitment to it. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not easy. I mean, that whole thing that I've explained to you makes our rum $1 more expensive per gallon to produce, uh-huh. right? Because yeah. there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, other components to it. You know, it takes you, you have to do the right thing. There's, there's, you know, capital costs. There's a whole bunch of things to do it. So there's benefits, uh, in terms of energetic, but, you know, as we know, like, what's the value of clean air? Nobody, you know, nobody's quantified that. Exactly. So, since there, all the externalities are not part of the equation, when you look at the bottom line, yeah, it's a little more expensive to do it this way. But you're doing it the right way, and eventually, when we start taking into account all the externalities, what's the value of clean water, what's the value of, of clean air, uh, what's the value of, you know, just having a planet that works, then that, that, those things, then I think the, the economic, Equations will catch up, and uh, and then we'll we'll have we'll be at an advantage. So but anyway, that's that's so, downstream. So, well, you know what, Roberto, so, so if you keep fill- experimenting with things, I think that um, I, I'm going to convert from a scotch drinker to a rum drinker in the near future because I'm going to be having to sample a lot of your rums. <laughs> I, I, I just Great. Want, I'm so I just happy. want to be I just want to be a taste tester. 
<laughs> yeah, these are, you know, I got to tell you, I, I love my job because one of the beautiful things about this project of the, the double aged is that we, my, the master blender and I, uh, we sit around, uh, we have to try these rums every, you know, every couple of weeks we say we get, because it's a, it's a, it's a moving target. Uh-huh. We get, how do we know it's not gone too far? We got to test it every other week. So every other week I sit with my master blender, we taste our cognac finish, we taste our, our sherry can, all the finishes that we're playing around with just to see how they're going. So that's, that's definitely a great, of the of the job. Well, so, sounds like sounds like a great excuse. Yeah. I love meeting you, by the way. Finally, <laughs> I've been trying to do this since February. <laughs> Roberta, we're 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 so glad we had the opportunity to share your story with our listeners. It's uh, it's re- yeah. it's really quite quite unique. A man a man ch- changing the direction of a spirit. How about that? That's yeah. That's pretty that's pretty bold stuff. So so well done so far, and I'm sure. It'll continue to be exciting, and we hope to continue to be a part of it. Well, thank you so much for for your interest and time. Uh, It's a real pleasure to speak with both of you. And one of the people on the line with us right now has been making rum since 1703. (laughs) Who who would like to explain that after after all these years they're still at it? This is Kayla Mata, brand ambassador for Mount Gay Rum, which is, in fact, the oldest company making rum in existence, right? Well, certainly a lot lot of people think so. (laughs) Yes. And and it's on the island of Barbados, and all they do is make rum and play cricket. This is very true. Uh, Yes, um... First of all, thank you so much for um, having me. Um, I am the brand ambassador for Mount Gay Rum, um, working with Collective 1806, which is a uh, collective of bartenders that really champion cocktail history and cocktail culture. Um, and yeah, I've, you know, and, we, and we've been working with Mount Gay Rum, which again is the oldest um, oldest rum in the world, um, and, yeah, established in 1703. You guys, you guys know your stats. You got it already. <laughs> well, I, well uh-huh. I, looked, I looked at it very quickly. One of the things I was very interested in is that, that the, the young man who is still the distiller, if you like, is, 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 yeah, indeed, so is, indeed, is indeed a very young man. Alan Smith. <laughs> yeah, Alan Smith. He, he actually um, he's a fantastic fellow. Um, he joined Mount Gay uh, in 1991, I believe, um, and he's been killing it for us. He's been great. Um, yeah, he's our, he's our master blender. Well, now, uh, you know, it's, it's the oldest premium, and I think premium is a very important word here because we're not talking about the original rock god stuff that we used to pass off for this um, the spirit, and we're talking about the, the the company and the product with a long history that has reached a point of refinement where it is a premium product, as good for sipping straight as for anything else. Is that your impression? Oh, a hundred, a hundred percent. And you know, we have five different styles of of rum um, that we are producing, and. Each kind of play a part in 
in your drinking style. You know, um, we have the Mount Gay Silver, which is something that I would put in, uh, you know, put it over crushed ice and have a mojito, and it's delightful. Um, our Mount Gay Eclipse, I would put with, you know, ginger beer. Um, a Mount Gay Black Barrel, definitely a daiquiri. Like, would love, love it in a daiquiri. Our XO and our 1703. Um, you know, I would sit, I would make them either an old fashioned or, you know, sip on it. There's just, a, there's so much that you can do with, with each of them. Um, and I think they each have a place in, in your drink. Right. They're different <laughs> yeah. expressions. I, st- I started with the 1703 myself. Yeah. You know, uh, let me tell you something that a uh, little <laughs> secret is I'm running downstairs <laughs> to sip some of this before it's gone. I mean, I haven't had any of that. <laughs> Exactly. Which which expression were you sipping on? Was it uh, which one were you were you sipping on? I started with the seventeen oh three. Why should I start with the with a, a less expensive alternative when I have a beautiful bottle uh, right in front of yeah, me? Yeah, the bottles are beautiful, right. by the way. Among other things, I mean, it uh, the quality of the spirit certainly deserves a beautiful presentation bottle, and the, and you have those. Um, Most definitely, yeah. I, I absolutely agree with that. So, so listeners, if if you're a, a bourbon fancier, oh, let's, yeah. let's suppose you like a Woodford Reserve or a, or a Pappy Van Winkle or something like that, and you want to try something different that will challenge, challenge you to appreciate it, the 1703, that's it. That's it. Oh, uh-huh. that's I, the, I, that's I couldn't the agree more. No. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it is aged anywhere from, we have a blend of, of that, and it, it, it's anywhere from like 12 to 30 years. So, you know, you really get, you intake, you know, the the, the wood, the oak barrels, um, the bourbon oak barrels. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I, I can definite, definitely see whiskey drinkers um, enjoying the 1703 uh, as well as the XO. I'm sorry, I don't, um, I mean, we're, it's been, it's the oldest, <laughs> so I guess, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big namesake in, in the rum world, mm-hmm. um, it being the, you know, kind of the rum of rum, um, but yeah, we are under the Remy Cointreau portfolio, um, yeah, <laughs> um, we, I mean, yeah, we, we, Read and we interviewed this book on the history of, uh, of rum, uh, and it really is an exciting um, evolution of a, of a product. Uh, Wayne Curtis is the guy who he's an historian who wrote this book called "And a Bottle of Rum," and it mm-hmm. it, it really um, it uh, correlates with the history of our country of of, uh, of the U.S. as well as of any other. Um, the islands or anything, and it's it really has. Has your company had its ups and downs throughout this history, like most of them did? Yes, yeah, so it really does. Actually, um, it does have a lot of uh, you know, American. A very American thing is to drink rum. Um, I think that it was then, and now more than ever, I see a, a big a big push for it again. Um, you know, there's huge, there's hu- big companies opening up rum bars. You know, Major Food Group opened up the Polynesian, 
which, oh yeah, um, really. That's it's, a... it's here in New York, and and you know they're they're killing it. I was actually just there two days ago, enjoying uh, a Mount Day XO old fashioned, and um, and they're busy. They're it was a line to get in, um, and I think that's really really important for for us, and um, it's really exciting that people are interested in it and. There are so there's so many different rums out there. Um, you know, we we are an English style rum, and that being said, there's you know three other types of rum as well. And uh, you mean as opposed it's, to it's like, really fun to champion that, you know? Is it like an uh, English style as opposed to like a Jamaican style? Yeah, so like uh, Jamaican would fall under the, the English style of rum. You know, like a a navy rum. It has a little bit, com- you know, it's complex. Um, uh-huh. We we use uh, well, for instance, you know, our, we are double distilled um, in a column still, which you'll get a little bit more of your Cuban, your delicate flavors, um, and then we are pot stilled as well. So, with that being said, you get your Again, you're Jamaican, you're ripe, you're, you know, ripe banana um, flavors as well. So uh, it's, it's both a blend of delicate and bold flavors. Is it double distilled? It's double distilled? In, in two, yes. Huh, double distilled. And, and where, explain to me where all it's made. It's, it's all made in Barbados. Okay. Everything Everything is in Barbados, yeah. It must employ the um, whole... The whole Barbados now. <laughs> I mean, you actually go there, and it's it's yeah. I'm I'm sure of it. Yeah. Um. But yeah, you know, going back on what you said, it, it is a very um, it was a very American thing, and I'm I'm happy to see it um, rise again. And uh, it's actually we sponsor, and actually, sailors love Mount Gay Rum. Um. We've sponsored uh, hundreds of regattas, and um, and it's fun to see that they they really enjoy it. Um, I mean, what's better than seeing you know sailor drinks and mm-hmm. <laughs> Kind of a kind of great. Um, no, yeah. So we, we we tie in a lot with the sailing community, um, which is you know they're, they're, it's time well spent for them, you know, bonding over their shared experiences and their shared passions um, while drinking that day. It's kind of cool. <laughs> now, you win <laughs> awards, right? You, you win awards and have distinctions? Yeah, throughout, of course, throughout the years. It's definitely well-recognized. Um, it's definitely a well-recognized uh, premium run. Now, what's what's your of, of all the rum cocktails? What's your personal favorite? Oh, I I love a daiquiri. I am I am a I'm a sucker for a daiquiri. There we go. Okay. And, you know, it's it's, a, it's better. You know, it's just lime and sugar with Mount Gay. It's it's perfect. Well, it's also a very good palate cleanser. So you know, if you're having dinner with some friends, you know, and Enjoy enjoy a daiquiri and get you know have have a nice meal. Now what what if what about if you were sipping after dinner? Uh, sipping after dinner, that's when I when I would pull out the Mount Gay XO or seventeen oh three. But um, 
I would I would enjoy that meat or, uh, you know, and that with like a little bit of amaro, like a half and half. Um, amaro and Mount Gay is delightful. Um, Great. Well, well, yeah. let, well, well let, us, let us not keep you away from a, a daiquiri <laughs> <laughs> or one of those other ones any, any longer. Thank you so much for being so patient with the connection and uh, okay. share, sharing the story of Mount Gay since 1703 with our listeners at On The Menu Radio. Yes, I, I appreciate you having having me so much. And um, and it really couldn't have come at a better time. We do have, we are celebrating National Rum Day this, this week. So, um, yeah, it, tell it really us couldn't the have come at a better What's the I'm date? I'm sorry? What is the date? It is actually Thursday. Thursday. Which is what date? The 16th. Yeah, um, so August 15th is, is, uh, is National 16th. Rum Day. We'll be, sure, we'll be sure to mark it on our calendars and we'll, we'll ride along with you. <laughs> so, so, so yes, think, I think. mean, anytime I would be happy. You know what? I think you need a daiquiri. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. Yeah. And I, I say, I just think it's a whole new world of discovery for me you can sit and you can sip rum like you would fine scotch I think that's great yeah in fact I, I, I move it a little more towards like a, a cross between a fine cognac and a fine grappa all sort of mixed up <laughs> all sort of mixed up together and, and yet it's different uh, so, if, so if you're looking for a cocktail ingredient or you're looking for something to sip the night away uh, this is a program uh, that you should go back over and over and over. Pro- probably get your own copy of the of the book. Yeah, learn. And, 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 There's and, a lot to and learn. A bottle of it, so, so you can back up your drinking with knowledge. How about that? <laughs> backing up your backing up your drinking with knowledge and eating with knowledge is something we do on the menu radio all the time. We hope you enjoy being part of that with us and you'll join us again same time, same place next week. And until then, bye-bye.